Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. From the small towns to the big cities. We bring you the stories that matter. This is. This is. This is. The Our American Stories Podcast. This is Lee Habib, host of the Our American Stories Podcast. We can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team, They work hard day in and day out to bring you stories from everyday American. We tell the stories about this great country that may not be perfect, but sure is beautiful. If you'd like to support us and all that we do here, visit OurAmericanStories.com 
and go to the Giving tab. We're a nonprofit, and everything you give will be appreciated. Join our team in the work that we do and become a part of all that's going on here. Again, we are a nonprofit, and we appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly donations. It's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And now today, we bring you the story of the greatest political prank in American history. Also, we'll bring you the story from the founder of Jelly Belly, David Klein. But first, Steve Stolyer tells us his story of when his dad wanted him to get a job. But Steve didn't want to work at Taco Bell, so he called up his friend, Groucho Marx. In the summer of 74, I had two or three summer jobs fall through, for which I remain eternally grateful. And my dad was pressuring me, I don't want you sitting around on your fanny all summer long. I want you to find some job. There's a, they may need a bus boy at this restaurant, or you could uh, go get interviewed at Taco Bell. And I thought, I don't want to do any of that, but he's never going to let up on me. So I called Aaron Fleming, figuring I had nothing to lose. And I said, is there anything at all that you think maybe I could sort of help with? And she said, well, actually, it's funny you called. Because I used to be Groucho's secretary, but now I'm his manager. And we need someone to handle all of the fan mail that's been coming in and also to organize all of his memorabilia which is going to be donated to the Smithsonian after he's gone and we need someone who really knows their Marx Brothers and I'm thinking please 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 and in my mind's eye I have this sort of uh, Tex Avery cartoon image of me zipping out of the house and instantly appearing on the doorstep of Groucho's house while Aaron is still on the phone ex- explaining the job to me. It wasn't quite like that, but that's how it felt. And I thought that I would be working maybe in an office building maybe twice a month. He'd come by to sign checks or something. She said, oh no, you'll have your own room to work in at Groucho's house and uh, you can make your own hours. And, and I thought, and they're, and they're gonna pay me to do this? And so I drove to Groucho's house in Beverly Hills, and I was so nervous, but it worked out. And sure enough, there was a room that had been a painting studio that his last wife, whom he had divorced in 69, had used, and that became my office. And Groucho would often shuffle down the hall to or from his room or the living room or dining room, and we would chat. And uh, it was a very egalitarian household. Uh, I was to sit at the lunch table when Groucho would have lunch. There wasn't a, a sense that the help ate in the kitchen or anything that haughty. And so I would be lucky enough to be there when George Burns would come over or Steve Allen would come over or some of his former writers or if it was just, just in quotes, Groucho, 
and maybe a nurse or Groucho and Aaron. It would just be us. And I could ask him all these questions that I'd had that I thought, if I could ever meet him, I'd want to know this. And he appreciated the fact that I cared about and knew about all of the things that he had experienced and that he cared about and that we had similar, you know, we, we both liked Tin Pan Alley and George Gershwin and Irving Berlin and the humorists of the Algonquin Round Table. One time he called me into his room and gave me a $20 bill. And he said, go down to the record store and get me some records. You know what I like. And it, it meant so much to me that he had assumed that I would know what to get instead of having to explain it. But, I mean, those those days at the lunch table were so rich. Uh, and I came to appreciate him on on three different levels. First of all, he was Groucho Marx, the guy in the grease paint mustache swirling around on screen, insulting Margaret Dumont in and, and Duck Soup and Night at the Opera. And second, he was someone who personally knew people that, to me, didn't exist in three dimensions and in color. People like, uh, well, like George Gershwin and Irving Berlin, James Thurber, he was friends with W.C. Fields. Um, the idea that he knew these people personally, you know, and I would get insight into what they were like from him firsthand, you know, not something he'd read or heard about, but he was there. And then on the third level, he was a man from 1890. He was a 19th century human being, literally a Victorian, since she was on the throne when he was born, although he was born in New York and not in... England, and his first-hand memories went from before the Wright brothers to after the moon landing, which is a staggering chunk of American history, world history. I asked him once, what's the earliest you remember? And he thought a moment and he said, I guess probably the Spanish-American War, which was 1898. And... Um, he, he and his brothers had initially started out as a singing act in vaudeville in the early 1900s. Before they started adding comedy, they would sing harmony and popular songs. And, uh, you know, they did okay at that. But Groucho's career went back so far that he actually was one of the performers at a special charity benefit performance at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. Uh, Enrico Caruso was also on the bill that night. And the money was to go to the aid of victims of the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. For a history buff like me, and as I say, I had been a history major, although I shifted to motion picture television after I'd been working at Groucho's a while, because it was just impossible to ignore how strongly I was drawn to that world. You know, he would have health problems now and again. He'd have a small stroke or something like that, and I would think, oh, geez, this is it. This is, I think about three weeks into my working there, he had a slight stroke, and I thought, oh, it, it was great while it lasted, but now the, the coach is going to turn back into a pumpkin, and 
you know, that, that morning that I showed up that he'd had a stroke and the housekeeper said, uh, please keep your voice down, Mr. Marks has had a stroke, but the nurse asked that you go back to his room because she needs some help. And I expected him to be, you know, lying on the floor, unable to speak, unable to move. And instead, he was sitting in bed, propped up in his pajamas and mucklucks, reading the L.A. Times. And he said, uh, is the ambulance here yet? And I said, no. It figures. And goes back to his reading. And I thought, gee, he's really taking this in stride. He's not banging at death's door. He's reading the L.A. Times. And it was just that the nurse needed help uh, getting him in to take a leak in the bathroom because his balance was off from that stroke. So I, you know, I was happy to help out. And he bounced back from that and from a lot of other health setbacks, even though he was in his mid-80s by then. And it, it just became this remarkably rich experience for me that ended up lasting not three weeks as I had thought that morning, but three years, the last three years of Groucho's life. And so I was able to get to know and, you know, talk with and with Groucho, my hero. I also got to meet Zeppo the night that he came up there for dinner from Palm Springs. I had brought the young lady I was dating, a 19-year-old blonde who was very bright and very personable and very attractive. And he really took a liking to her. He, he sort of picked up where Chico left off in terms of having an eye for the ladies. And he had recently lost his last wife to Frank Sinatra, who dumped him and went for Sinatra, and that was Barbara Mark Sinatra. So he was back to being a bachelor. And uh, he, he said, uh, you know, Steve, you and uh, Linda should visit uh, me in Palm Springs sometime. And I said, well, I don't know. I was there when I was about nine, and it just, it was sweltering. And he said, well, when were you there, in the summer? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, Steve, it's also cold in Alaska in the winter. It was true that Zeppo did have a great sense of humor that really didn't get a chance to shine on screen. I had heard that he could be very funny and had, you know, a a charm and, and charisma and people are always skeptical of that because he was sort of wooden and didn't have the lion's share of funny stuff to do in the few movies he was in. He was never happy as a performer. And once he, once he left the act after Duck Soup in 1933, he became a very successful agent handling such obscure has-beens as Clark Gable and Carol Lombard and Barbara Stanwyck and Robert Taylor and Lucille Ball and Lana Turner. So he did really well and never looked back. But uh, anyway, a few months later, Linda and I broke up. I had a couple of photos that I wanted Zeppo to sign, so I mailed them to his address in Palm Springs And in my cover letter, I said, by the way, Linda and I broke up, so I know you've been around the block a few times if you have any advice for the lovelorn. And 
A few days later, my phone rings. Steve, it's Zeppo Marks. I hope I'm not inconveniencing. No, no. How? Uh, I got uh, the photos you sent. God, I was good looking back then. But uh, listen, I have a question for you, and I, I don't want to step on your toes. You understand that? Because the last thing in the world I'd want to do would be something to upset you. Oh, okay. Uh, do you think that Linda would go out with me? And I thought, what? I mean, she was 19, I was 20, and he was 74. But but a young 74, but 74. And I, I said, uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, she, she enjoyed, uh, you know, she got a kick. Uh, because uh, really, tell me honestly, Steve, if this is at all uh, uncomfortable. For... No, 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 no. I said, so let me let me ask her and... Uh, okay, I, I would appreciate it. And, and again, if it's any... Pro- no, 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 no. So I saw her at school and I asked her about it and she laughed, uh, also finding it strange and funny, but thought, you know, what the heck? I, I, I want to have the experience of going on a date with Zeppo Marx. So they went out once... Uh, he took her to dinner in San Diego and then drove to Tijuana and attended a Hialeah game at a stadium and then took her home. And I talked to him afterwards and he said, Steve, I want to tell you, I never even kissed a goodnight. You should know that. She's very nice, but all she did was talk about herself. And then I saw her on campus, and she said, you know, Zeppa was really nice, but all he did was talk about himself. And I thought, that's a really interesting symmetry there. And then at parties at Groucho's, whenever Zeppa would be there, he would make a point of introducing me to someone and say, this is Steve, he's a nice young man. He and I dated the same girl, but he got further with her than I did. That was like my official introduction. So anyway, I have the distinction of being able to say that Zeppo Marx and I dated the same girl. Uh, I also got to meet the other living Marx brother, Gummo, who, to those who aren't that familiar with the Marx brothers, it's even more obscure because Gummo was the straight man before Zeppo on the stage and then he was drafted during World War One and left the act so at the time 17 year old Zeppo took his place and Gummo also became an agent and did very he became Groucho's agent actually and did very well he was never that much interested in performing so I got to meet three out of five of the Marx Brothers which is you know approximately three more Marx Brothers than most people ever got a chance to meet Harpo and Chico uh, had died in the early 60s, unfortunately, so I was never able to meet them. But when I would watch Groucho and Zeppo and Gummo talking amongst themselves, which was great, I thought, what must it have been like with all five brothers in their youth sitting around the table? It must have been hysterical. Groucho had a cook named Robin who was tall and thin and blonde and young when Zeppo and Gummo had come up for dinner and I was there for that dinner Zeppo said Robin said she'd marry me but I don't know I think she's too tall for me 
Groucho said, well, what part of it do you want? And Zeppo said, I'll take as high up as I can reach. And Gummo said, what do you want with her feet? So there's a Gummo anecdote, which is extremely rare, but evidence of the kind of goofy humor they had amongst themselves, that quickness. It was just, it was all still there under various layers of rust. I was very fortunate because of my Groucho Association, I became friends with Dick Cavett. That was another case where, because of my insecurities, I thought when Groucho was gone, my link to Dick Cavett would be over. But instead, he called me from New York the week Groucho died, and he said, listen, I hope just because Groucho's gone, we're not going to lose touch. And by the way, I hope you don't mind, but I've shown some of your letters to Woody, and he says they're very well written. And I sort of had to empty the urine out of my shoes that Cavett was calling me to say, hey, don't, don't drop me as a friend, and saying, I hope you don't mind, but Woody Allen thinks your letters are well written. So that was something. And in fact, I did end up uh, moving to New York in 1982 and spending a few years there writing for Dick Cavett at HBO and had many remarkable adventures in Manhattan, including getting to meet Woody Allen and Katherine Hepburn and lots of other stuff before I returned to L.A. to take another job. And it was so great when I was working at Groucho's to be able to comfortably meet these people and converse because I think they figured since I was inside the house, I must be okay, whether I'm Groucho's grandson or something like that. If I'm sitting at Groucho's lunch table, it, I must be okay. So there wasn't any, nobody, there were no star trips there. There was people that were very down to earth and... I tended to find that the old people who were legends were much more down-to-earth and personable than some of the people who had recently become famous. Aaron Fleming tended to have younger friends, um, Elliot Gould and George Siegel and Bud Court and Sally Kellerman and uh, Streisand to a lesser degree. And, and I, I found myself instantly drawn to Groucho's old gang. I felt much more that I belonged there, even though I was 19 and they were in their 70s and 80s, than I did towards Aaron's sort of quirky group of nouveau stars. And a special thanks to Robbie for superb production and great storytelling. And a special thanks to Steve Stolyer as well. And you can find Steve's book, Raised Eyebrows, my years inside Groucho's house in all of the usual places. Go to Amazon.com and buy it. Raised eyebrows. Well, you'll get many more stories like this. And his observation that he was more comfortable at 19 with more humble legends than wannabe modern, well, new age stars and their attitudes and the way they walk about the world. And much of that probably had to do with coming up through the Great Depression and living when these guys lived. It was a different world and different times, and it produced different kinds of characters. And perhaps, at least in this young man's estimation, better characters, at least better ones to spend time with. And what a beautiful story about 
just an old man and a young man, and appreciating each other and spending time together, one adoring the other, and the other treating the other well, the older man treating a young man with real dignity, a legend treating a kid, well, almost like family. And by the way, if you have a story to share, we want to hear it. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And click on the Your Stories tab. We can't wait to hear from you. Up next, the story about one of the greatest political pranks in history. Here's Duncan Scott telling his story of when he pranked the New Mexico State Legislature. When I was elected to the state Senate in New Mexico in 1992, I was on a path of politics. But after I served four years in the state Senate, I concluded while it was an incredible honor to represent the people who were in my district, it was an absolute waste of my time. I was a Republican. New Mexico is a heavily blue Democratic state. So whatever Republican principles or philosophy I brought to the state Senate, it was dead on arrival. An educated monkey could have sat in my chair and it would have made no difference whatsoever for the arc of New Mexico history. When I did the pointy hat bill, it was obvious to me that If I proposed serious legislation, it wasn't going anywhere. And the pointy hat bill was really to address the insanity defense plea. So I thought that satire and uh, humor was a better form for getting out the idea that the insanity defense is way overused and inappropriately than drafting some technical change on the rules of evidence uh, that nobody would see and would fall asleep if they read. Your listeners will have to go back to the summer of 94, and some (laughs) will be alive. And my story with the pointy hat bill starts with O.J. Simpson. You recall he was driving with Al Dowling uh, down the Santa Monica Freeway in the white Bronco, and America was captured by it that night, and I was watching it on TV, and the commentators were saying, O.J. will plead uh, the insanity defense. He's clearly done it, uh, and that's his only option. Of course, later that proved not to be true, but as I watched the white Bronco and then reflected on it over the next few days, I came to the uh, idea that I would draft the pointy hat bill and introduce it when OJ pled the insanity defense. So we now know that OJ not only didn't plead the insanity defense, but he was acquitted on all charges by a jury the next year. So I drafted this bill and had it in my Senate bill drawer, not introduced. And I would show it to some of my friends in the Senate. and They'd all have a good laugh and we yucked about it. And I didn't think too much about it. Then one night, a benign bill came out on the Senate floor to relicense psychologists. There was a sunsetting provision and it was really an incontroversial or non-controversial bill. And while it's on the floor, a friend of mine who had seen my pointy hat bill turned around and said, hey, why don't you 
attach your bill as a floor amendment to that bill. And I said, that's a great idea. Grab the Senate. So my colleagues stood up and started debating the bill, which gave me time to get out scissors and tape. And I cut up my bill and taped it to a floor amendment sheet and ran it up to the to the uh, reader of the Senate. Now, at that point, normally the reader would photocopy the bill and distribute it to the 42 senators. Instead, I asked permission for the reader to read my floor amendment. When a psychologist or psychiatrist testifies during a defendant's competency hearing, the psychologist or psychiatrist shall wear a cone-shaped hat that is not less than two feet tall. The surface of the hat shall be imprinted with stars and lightning bolts. Additionally, the psychologist or psychiatrist shall be required to don a white beard that is not less than 18 inches in length and shall punctuate crucial elements of his testimony by stabbing the air with a wand. Whenever a psychologist or psychiatrist provides expert testimony regarding a defendant's competency, the bailiff shall contemporaneously dim the courtroom lights and administer two strikes to a Chinese gong. Not surprisingly, uh, the Senate got a good laugh. And then I stood up because it's bad form to joke with people's bills. So I asked to withdraw my amendment. Instead of the body allowing me to withdraw it, the Senate passed my amendment. So then I stood up and said, I have so little control or power in this body, I can't even kill my own bills. So at that point, the benign licensing of psychologists now has my pointy hat bill on it. And the sponsor of this benign bill, Senator Romero, was standing there sort of shell-shocked. And worse, he had a psychologist next to him who was the expert to testify on the bill if needed. And now his bill has my pointy hat amendment on it. So I went over and I apologized to Senator Romero and to the uh, psychologist saying, you know, I, I did my best not to get it attached, but here we go. And then uh, the bill went over to the House. The House stripped the amendment off, sent it back to the Senate. We concurred and uh, that's how the bill <laughs> made its way through the legislative process, really on a happy accident one night, late, late at night. I did not run again and did not do much in terms of politics in New Mexico thereafter. I really focused on my law practice, raising a son, uh, having a wonderful marriage and, you know, mom pop stuff. I've had a wonderful life. It's been, it's been a great adventure, but I was through with politics at that point. And great work to Joey for bringing us that piece and a special thanks to Duncan Scott, the greatest political prank in American history. The pointy hat bill, it's rise, it's fall, and my goodness, thanks for the laughs. If you love what you're listening to and the stories we bring you every day, please give us a five-star rating. It really helps us out on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to us on. Finally, we bring you The Candyman, the story of David Klein, the founder of Jelly Belly. I was born in Syracuse, New York. Uh, we left there when I was three and a half, and I remember nothing about it. 
We came to California. My dad uh, was the best furniture salesman in the world. And he knew more about furniture than anybody alive. And when I was growing up, I worked in a liquor store that my aunt and grandmother owned. It was in Van Nuys, right next to a Union 76 station that was owned by Joe Funicello, Annette Funicello's father. And in those days, if your family owned the liquor store, you could work in there. And from the age of about seven to 13, uh, I worked in the liquor store all during the summer and after school. And I got quite an experience dealing with the public. I learned how to count money at the age of seven, make change, and all the things that I learned there I wanted to put into a book one day and the title of the book would be Everything I Knew in Life I Learned Working in a Liquor Store. And what happened was we had a candy section there and I would go with my aunt once a week to Smart and Final which was one of the wholesale candy places. Uh, most of the candy bars back in that those days, uh, that, let's see, it was 1946 plus 7. 46 for 7, for 8, for 9, 51, 2. 1953. 7, for 8, for 9, 51, 2. Yeah, 1953. Uh, Smart and Final would display the bars, the candy bars, 24 in a box. And if there was no shrink, shrunk, shrink wrapped on any of the boxes. If you wanted to taste one of the bars to see if you liked it, you would put a nickel right in the box and then take a bar out. And that way, whoever bought that box would already have a sale. And it was, I made a study of candy at the, starting at the age of seven. I would study every bar, see where it was made, see the company who made it, and then go to the library. I did a study on uh, Standard and Poor's Guide in the re financial reference section. And I would look to see, for example, uh, Baby Ruth, Butterfinger. Those were made in those, in those days by the uh, Curtis Candy Company. Uh, and then I followed the company when it was acquired by Standard Brands, and then when it was acquired by Nabisco, and through all of the, I would learn the history of every candy bar. Uh, when I was in school, and the teacher had to leave the room for a few minutes, she would ask me, or she or he would ask me, to come up in the front and talk about candy. And kids would yell out names of candy bars, and I would tell them the history behind that particular bar. I went to Van Nuys High in Van Nuys, California. Uh, I graduated Van Nuys High with honors and went to UCLA, 
graduated uh, with an, a degree in economics, which is a fantastic major. Now, while I was at UCLA, I used to sell popcorn. I was in the popcorn business with my uncle, where I would go after school. I had already taken the back seat out of my car. I loaded the car with bags of popped popcorn. And I was selling those primarily to liquor stores uh, because you can go into a liquor store till actually two in the morning in, in California. You cannot sell liquor legally after two in the morning. So I would usually have my route till about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, would go in all kinds of areas that I really should not have been in at night. Uh, but I, I was, and nothing ever happened to me. And then I would go home, and I'd get up at 6, 7 o'clock in the morning and go to UCLA. Uh, after school, I would go pop the popcorn uh, in Atwater. And I really learned about the food business uh, by doing that. Uh, you, in order to learn a business, it's, I mean, it's nice to, to read about it, but unless you really get in there and get your hands uh, dirty, you really need to experience the business. Here's what happened in law school. I always knew that I would never want to be an attorney. I went there because my parents wanted me to, and I also went there so that I would have a legal background if, there were, if we ever had any legal problems. I graduated in the top of my class. Uh, when it came to take the bar, uh, the bar was in two parts. Uh, the first part was in the morning, and then the second part, it was a true and false test on uh, legal responsibility. And I never went back for the second part. I went to get a haircut instead. I knew that if I had passed the bar, which I'm sure I would have, I would have become an attorney. And I, it wasn't for me. It, it wasn't what I personally wanted to do in my life. And it was almost as if I knew I would be in the candy business someday. It was almost like it was, there was nothing else for me to do. I would be in the candy business. And there was something about candy. I liked the idea that you could always come up with a new idea, a new creation. And when I was in the wholesale candy and nut business, one day I came up with the idea of creating a gourmet jelly bean. Well, I was watching television. It was a Thursday night at 8.15. Happy Days. Happy Days was on the air when I was talking to a buddy on the phone. We were talking about new businesses because I always love to, talk, love to talk about new businesses. And I said, I think I'm going to open up a candy store and only sell jelly beans. Nothing else. And he said, jelly beans? I said, yes, jelly beans. 
no jawbreakers, no gumballs, just jelly beans. And I knew that if that's what I concentrated on, they would have to be special jelly beans. And that's when the idea started. I had $800 to my name. No credit cards back then. The only credit card that was available was Diners Club. The year was 1976. So I approached uh, the company that was in Oakland, California. Their name was Herman Golitz, G-O-E-L-I-T-Z. And I asked them if they would be my contract manufacturer. And I told them what the idea was. And they said, sure, let's give it a shot. And in the beginning, we had a very hard time selling the product. Uh, most of the beans back in those days, our competition, uh, they were selling for about 49 59 cents a pound. And that's exactly what I was paying my contract manufacturer, 59 a pound. But that's what every other bean was retailing for. I realized that in order to get the product off the ground, I would have to get some publicity for it. So one day I called up the Associated Press talked to a young man by the name of Steve Fox. He was in charge of the business section. Associated Press was huge back in those days. And I realized that they could make or break the product. I could have started with a local newspaper, but I figured I'd start at the top. I didn't have enough money to rent a store, so I called on one of my wholesale customers who I sold uh, walnuts to and almonds that they put in their ice cream. They had an ice cream factory at 1824 West Main in Alhambra. And I said to them, you have your medals from the county fair over in the corner. Uh, I would like to have that space. This is my new product. It's going to be called Jelly Bellies. And I would like to put a little stand in there, which I will pay for. So he said, okay, how much rent do you want to pay? And I said, I can't really pay any rent because I, I just don't have the funds. And I said, how about if I pay you a dollar for every pound that is sold? One dollar. The first dollar goes to you. He said, well, how much are they going to sell for? I said, $2 a pound. I said, I will split whatever comes in. You get the first dollar. And he said, it sounds good. So I put the stand in there. I had a, um, the daughter of one of the men that owned the ice cream parlor uh, was a, a, an exceptionally good graphic artist. And she called me up and said she needed a project for her art center school. She was at the College of Art and Design. And she would like to use Jelly Belly as her term paper. 
and I left it up to her. She was the one that picked out the colors and she did a Jelly Belly logo that is still in use today. A young lad came in one day on a bicycle and he said, I would like to try one of your strawberry jelly beans. So I had a little spoon there. I spooned out one and I said, here, what do you think of it? And he said, that doesn't taste like strawberry. I said, okay, what does it taste like? He said, that tastes like cotton candy. And as soon as he left, I had one of the sign makers there make me a sign that said cotton candy. And from then on in, there was no strawberry flavor. It was cotton candy. And I never got a chance to thank that young lad. He's out there somewhere. The first order of jelly beans that I got in, there were eight flavors. Root beer was one of them. I always loved root beer. Uh, the soda. I loved root beer and I loved cream soda. So we had a vanilla one. And instead of calling it vanilla, I named it cream soda. I always like to have creative names to all of the, the flavors. Instead of calling one chocolate, it was chocolate pudding. Uh, so I tried to create as many cre uh, names that were different just to distinguish them from other products. So when I told them what I wanted, I said, I want to make a miniature jelly bean. I didn't want the big ones like they used to see in Easter baskets. And I told them that the beans have to be flavored on the inside as well as on the outside shell. That way I could do double flavors. I could do like chocolate banana and do the outside chocolate and the inside banana. Uh, I told them I wanted a watermelon bean and I wanted it green on the outside and red on the inside. Prior to Jelly Bellies, every jelly bean that you used to see used to be white on the inside because they made only one center. And then the, they put the flavor into the shell, if they put any flavor at all. Most jelly beans tasted the same, except for the black one, the licorice one. And so I was really the first one to come up with the idea of flavoring the outside as well as the inside. And that's how Jelly Belly got its start. And most days we took in about $20. That was the average day uh, until the article came out in the Associated Press. And then I started getting calls from department stores such as Marshall Fields in Chicago. They said, we want to buy your beans. I said, we're here in California. How did you hear about them? Well, it was just in the Chicago Tribune. It was also in the Detroit Free Press. It was in the New York Times. It was in the LA Times. The article broke on the, on the wire and 
It went everywhere. And the product really started to take off. Uh, it took off to the point where uh, sales were just incredible. Uh, my contract manufacturer actually could not keep up with the orders. Uh, when I initially had talked to them, I asked them, I said, this is going to be big, guys. I said, are you going to be able to keep up with the, all the orders? And they said yes. And I did not realize that they were a primarily a small candy corn manufacturer in Oakland uh, with about 10 employees. And somehow or another in my mind, I always picture them as a larger company. The biggest mistake I ever made was not flying up there in the beginning to see what, what their factory looked like. Because if I had seen it, I would have known that they never would have been able to keep up with production. And then O.J. Simpson was on the cover of People Magazine, the issue that I was in. And when my contract manufacturer saw the picture, I had on bathing shorts and nothing else. He turned to his sales manager and said that I had blown the whole golden goose because nobody would buy a product from somebody that would pose half naked in a magazine. And so at that point in time, he instructed his sales manager, they also made candy corn and it was made on the same equipment as the jelly beans. He instructed him without telling me to sign as many contracts as he could to be selling candy corn at 29 cents a pound just to keep the factory open. And I was, I was never told that. So here I am trying to promote an item that I can, I'm wondering why there's no production on. And what it did, it created a void in the marketplace that other manufacturers were just happy to fill. One day, I got a call from the owner of my contract manufacturing company. And he said, we're coming to town. And I said, okay, great. I'll pick you up at the airport. What airport are you flying into? And he said, it's not going to be one of those kind of meetings. And I said, well, what kind of meeting is it? He said, we're coming to buy your trademark and we're not gonna leave until we do. As soon as I signed the contract where we were turning the name over to them, we were driving on Rosemead Boulevard to the bank to get the contract notarized. And while on the way there, I was sitting in the back seat Herm, my contract manufacturer, was in the front seat. And he turned around and I said, Herm, I have one question for you. If we were not on our way to the bank to have this contract notarized, what would you have done? And he said, do you really want to know? I said, yeah, tell me, what would you have done? 
He said we would have flown back to Oakland and on Monday morning we would have shut off production to you on Jelly Bellies. We would have cut you off completely. You would not, not have any more product. We know you would have sued us, but by the time it got to court, you would have been broke. Those were his exact words. I can remember them today like they were yesterday. We would have cut you off. Uh, in fact, they told me as we were going to get it notarized, they had another name already picked out that he had on the other side of his lap, on a piece of paper on his lap. He said, you want to see the name that we would have called it? And I said, sure. And he showed it to me. I don't remember what that name was. But anyway, they took over ownership of the name. Uh, they paid us 17 cents a pound for the first 120,000 pounds per month royalty uh, maximum. Once the product reached that level, uh, there was no royalty at all. So we only got paid on the first 120,000 pounds at 17 cents a pound, which came to $20,000 per month. I split that with my partner and then Uncle Sam obviously got his share of it. And right from the beginning, when I sold, it was almost like selling a, a member of your family, a child, uh, uh, Jelly Belly. I spent four years of my life going around the country, promoting the product, being on radio shows, on talk shows, on television shows. Uh, at least once uh, a week and giving interviews in magazines and all kinds of uh, media and uh, losing the ownership of it was heartbreaking for me. The minute they took over, they started packaging the product and the prior packaging had my signature on there uh, Mr. Jelly Belly, uh, about a, two months later, I went into a supermarket and I looked at the package uh, and there was a computer generated Mr. Jelly Belly instead of uh, my Mr. Jelly Belly signature. Uh, when they came out with a book called The 30 Year History of Jelly Bellies, I was not even mentioned in, the, in that at all. So they pretended that I never existed. As soon as Colonel Sanders sold out, he was still Colonel Sanders. As soon as I sold out, I was nobody. So they, they basically did what they could to destroy any knowledge of me having anything to do with the product. But for many, many years, I, I just did not have a good feeling about creating the product but I've come to terms with the fact that so many people were employed by the company. All I can tell you is it was an experience uh, creating a world, a product that's got about 98% name recognition. But uh, 
You have to recreate yourself. Uh, recently, we got involved in the CBD jelly bean business. We are making jelly beans with CBD in them, 10 milligrams per bean. So right now, back into the jelly bean business after all these years. Uh, last year, around September, we started a new venture. Uh, it's called the goldticket.com. It's a, a nationwide treasure hunt. We hide a gold necklace in 50 states, different areas, obviously. And we give clues, riddles. We give a riddle so that they know where it is. The winner for each of the 50 contests receive $5,000. All states were claimed. Uh, and we received so much positive feedback on that because while COVID was going on, people didn't have too many activities that they could go to. This, they could pile everybody into a car and travel all together. And it was extremely successful. So it was so successful that we're doing another round of that same activity. So we're very happy doing that. And we feel like we're doing some, something really good for the world. And the one documentary that's out there now, it's shown on Amazon. And uh, you can watch it if you're an Amazon member for free. And it's been seen all over the world. It's called Candyman, the David Klein story. My son and his wife and Costa Botez collaborated on it. They made it into a very good, very great documentary, in my opinion, that will stand the test of times. So that brings us up to date. And uh, I, I, I love being in a business where you feel that you can help people. This is America. If you come up with a good idea, you can run with that idea. Make them happy. That's the whole idea behind it. And great job, as always, by Greg on that story. And a special thanks to David Klein for telling his story. Thanks to his son as well for making the documentary Candyman. It's an important story. And by the way, this is the reason sometimes people don't like capitalism. There'll be some ruthless operators out there who will take advantage. And it's, it's awful. And it's terrible. But my goodness, his product's out there. It's made a difference. He did make some money, but in the end, it got stolen from him because, well, he just didn't have the right legal defense and the right amount of capital to fight back against that manufacturer. David Klein's story, and it's a remarkable story about so much in American life and a, and a bit of a tragic story in the sense that, well, something that he created he was stripped out of the story of that creation, and it was just not necessary. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, by all means, go back and listen to them. We've covered the story of the Texas grocery store that gave groceries away for free during an ice storm, how the Pilsner came to America, 
and also the story of the former CEO of 7-Eleven and the American Dream, plus so many more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories Podcast. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.